a high volume of data can contain a high volume of useful information. That fact is well understood by the software world. After all, we have already had the big data revolution, and the big data revolution had plenty of people finding lots of value in their large volumes of data. Unfortunately, it's not a simple process to surface all that useful information from this high volume of data. There are certainly plenty of insights that we are not discovering from our mountains of data. And the typical way that we are still surfacing this data is with the help of a human analyst. A human analyst needs to understand the business, formulate a question, and determine what metrics could reveal the answer to such a question. And this is the case in any domain where we're looking at large volumes of data. Sisu is a system for automatically surfacing insights from large datasets within companies. A user of Sisu can select a database column that they're interested in learning more about, and Sisu will automatically analyze the records in the database to look for trends and relationships between that column and the other columns. For example, if I have a database of user purchases, including how much money those users spent on each purchase, I can ask Sisu to analyze the purchase price column and find what kinds of attributes correlate with a high purchase price. Perhaps there will be correlations such as age and city that I can use to understand where my customers live and how old they are if they're going to buy expensive purchases. Sisu can automatically surface these correlations and display them to me and help me make better business decisions. Peter Bayless is the CEO of Sisu Data and an assistant professor at Stanford. Peter returns to the show to give his perspective on the development of Sisu, which came out of his research on data-intensive systems, including Macrobase, an analytic monitoring engine that prioritizes human attention. Sisu is an ambitious project, and it's a great example of the kinds of systems that can be built if you embed machine learning deep inside of a system. Sisu is the company that you're building. It's a system for surfacing metrics that are emerging from large data sets. Give an example of a metric that Sisu would surface. Yeah, so uh, one public example I can talk about, Samsung, which is a customer, tracks device upgrades, right? So they release a number of new phones every year. It's highly important to figure out, you know, who's adopting these new phones and, you know, what campaigns, carriers, and so on are, are underperforming and overperforming. And what Sisu can do is, you know, we sit on top of structured data about, you know, the new device upgrades, you know, make, model, carrier, that sort of thing. And there's a huge number of columns present in this data. But there's one metric of interest, which is conversion. Like, did this customer convert? And what's the conversion volume? And so CSU sits on top of the structured data and helps explain changes to the conversion rate as customer behavior changes and as new you know, marketing and promo materials are rolled out. CSU was built around Macrobase originally. This is the, the system that you've been working on for several years. What was your thesis around Macrobase? And, and has that thesis changed over time? Yeah, totally. So I started this macro-based project back in 2015. I just accepted a project or a, a assistant professorship at Stanford. And I knew I had like seven years as an assistant professor to do something before they kicked me out. And so I had been doing transaction processing work at the time, building really fast, scalable read-write engines that you know make sure only one person gets the last object on the shelf at Amazon, for example. But quickly realized at the end of my PhD that like not only the systems we were building, but a bunch of people that were commercializing systems were building systems that were so fast you could do like one transaction per person on the planet every minute with like half a million dollars of hardware. And so it was very quickly becoming the case that like if data volumes were to keep going up, it wasn't just going to come from people, you know, reading and writing to transactional data stores. It was going to come from recording more information about every event in a business or in a given business process. And so the kind of core thesis was looking around what was going on in cloud. We said, imagine that storage is free or near free. And imagine you have really good distributed compute engines like Spark, because there's a lot of them and they all do a pretty good job of parallelizing compute. What would you build on top of this? 
And just spending time with some friends, initially some folks at MIT who had a, a startup looking at like analyzing driver behavior, but then later on looking at you know larger internet scale use cases with some collaborators and sponsors at places like Microsoft and Facebook and Google, you know the core question was what do you do with massive amounts of data that's largely structured or at least is event based? So you have you know a bunch of columns, but you don't have enough time to dig in and actually look at every individual event like how would you prioritize people's attention in these massive streams of data? And when a change occurs in a system, how do you know that the change occurred and why it occurred and what to do about it? And that was kind of a big, big project. But some of the core ideas that we found that essentially landed were one, people have massive amounts of structured data, surprisingly, not just at the you know, large internet scale, but talking to people in like retail and fast food, like all of the fast food you know, credit card receipts were not just like in a point of sale system, but they were being uploaded in a database like Redshift and Snowflake, which is kind of cool to think about all that data coming together. And two, you know, data volumes weren't just increasing because, you know, you had more people buying tacos. It was that, you know, every taco you buy, you have more information about who's at the register and what was the fryer temperature and, you know, what loyalty program, you know, were you in? And so basically that growth in both the availability of structured data and the width of structured data were surprising that it wasn't just the internet companies having this problem. It was kind of everyone. The thesis of Sisu, as, as you said, is you might have a database or a table with a specific column that you want to focus on and find correlations with. For example, the number of sales or the am- amount of dollars per sale you want to maximize the amount of dollars per sale and you want to find correlations between the other columns in a particular data set. You, know, you may have these, these really elaborate databases with lots and lots of columns and you just want to find correlations among those data sets. And I think the idea is that you would have these these correlations be served to an operational analyst. So maybe you you have a bunch of insights that get automatically generated by this database and they say, you know, the churn rate of this, you know, subscriber base increases 22% if you tend to send them an email at this certain time. And then the operational analyst can look at that insight and can choose to do something with it. Am, Am I understanding that thesis correctly? Yeah, I think that's an amazing summary. In in a nutshell, like I think the things that have changed in addition to just having this data that's available is as you touched on, there's an increasing number of people who have access to this type of data inside of their businesses, right? So, you know, we were we were at a bank in New York last month and you know, they've got eighty thousand employees and a hundred thousand BI licenses <laughs> because someone buys or does a migration to typically a cloud warehouse today, like Snowflake or Redshift or BigQuery. And then the next step, once you've aggregated and cleaned all of this data is you just buy a bunch of BI licenses, Tableau, Looker, MicroStrategy, probably a bunch of these actually at once. And then suddenly people build dashboards on top of this. So it's not just like a data analytics team that has access to this data, but it's you know the marketing operations team, it's uh, financial planning and analysis, uh, it's store level operations that are all becoming more data informed. But at the same time, you haven't scaled the number of analysts who can truly go in and, and dig deep into these metrics and actually you know figure out what's driving a change. And you know I'd say historically, especially without aggregating this data, you have data in different silos. You know, you might have had your sales data in one database and your marketing data in another database and your transaction level data in a third database. When you bring all this together, the probability that any individual business operator, so someone who's otherwise just staring at dashboards, the probability that they have an attribute or a set of columns in the data that they can actually take action on. So you brought up some good examples like a marketing uh, operator can change, you know, who they're targeting a campaign or the copy on the campaign. In operations, we can change, you know, pricing and discounting and coupon codes. Or there's a lot of changes I can actually make in the business, which I would already be making today. But there's actually data sometimes for the first time in these large organizations that are decades old that that can actually inform those decisions. And so the challenge is kind of twofold. One is, you know, computationally, it's very expensive to go and run these types of correlations and different hypothesis tests on top of these huge, like really massive databases. And the second part is just, you know, knowing what to surface to a user who's got time to look at three to five 
recommendations on any given day, right? Out of this space of like hundreds of millions of things you could go and show them on top of hundreds of millions of records, like what matters most to the marketing operations person versus the performance marketer versus the product manager versus the store manager. But the cool part, and like the reason why I'm super jazzed about this angle on analytics is that it's not like data analysis as a specialized function. There's this thing that uh, Andreessen Horowitz likes to say, and I think they have a really cool article on this, which is like, everyone's becoming an analyst. And the question is, given the data that's available to them, our thesis is that the, the toolkit for making that data useful is got to change, not just from a scalability perspective, but from a user experience and expectations perspective. Let's say I have a large data set for Sisu. So let's say it's the Software Engineering Daily listener base. Let's say I've got 10 million listeners. That's way more listeners than I actually have. But let's say I have 10 million listeners. And so I've got 10 million rows. And let's say I have a ton of data on each of these people. I've got, you know, like 80 or 100 columns and I've got the age, I've got the gender, I've got their favorite programming language, I've got their favorite database, I've got the number of episodes that they listen to of Software Engineering Daily. I know, you know, do they like structured data? Do they like unstructured data? And I just want to know what correlates with people who have listened to lots of episodes. I want to put all this data into Sisu, and I want to be able to just have Sisu spit back out insights about what leads to lots of listens. How does Sisu do that? Yeah, uh, great question. So what we essentially do, let's say you've got a row per listener in your in your database, and you've got some column in there, which is the number of listens, or say the number of listens in the last 90 days. So you have kind of more recent data. What we can essentially do is we'd plug that data into Sisu. So we, we only work on structured data. So we connect to your cloud database or on-prem database, whatever database you have this stored in. And you'd come in and configure what we call an objective or a metric that you want to track. So you'd say, my data is located in this table, or you can join together multiple tables. I've got a column here, which is number of listens. And tell me everything you can tell me about increasing this metric. And then all of the other columns, like uh, let's say date that they came in on, programming language, other interests, maybe age, if you've got that, we'll throw it all in to this engine, essentially by default in a graphical UI. And then under the hood, what we'll do is we'll pull this data in and essentially do exactly what you do if you had a lot of time on your hands. You know, what individual programming languages affect uh, propensity to, to listen? Uh, what are the combinations of programming languages and age ranges? So we'll actually split the ranges up into different cohorts to see which ones make the biggest pop. We'll look at age on their own. We can look at location plus age plus programming languages. Basically look at this entire space of not just individual variables, but combinations of variables. And then we can actually rank them by how much each of these variables and subpopulations are affecting overall viewership or listenership in the case of the podcast. And the idea here is that you'll get a rank set of factors that are most contributing to your kind of diehard viewership and not just individual variables, but but these often hard to diagnose, you know, cohorts, right? You might have, you know, a, a local community in Boise, Idaho that, you know, really loves listening, holds listening parties every, you know, Wednesday night for the podcast. And and, and that'd be very hard to look unless you happen to slice by day and and location, but pops up in the data, it's already present. It's just hard to find. And I would guess, actually, you know, given given your background, right, you probably know who your most loyal listeners are, what topics tend to get the most hits. But one of the things that we find really challenging from a business perspective is, you know, given that you're releasing new content, weekly, uh, monthly topics are constantly changing. Historical content sometimes, you know, resurfaces on Hacker News or on Twitter, right? That ability to continuously keep up—it's not just what's happening right now, but once I've got that data connected, what changed over the last seven days? What changed over the last 28 days? What changed this year versus last year, right? You just, it's not cost-effective to keep up in any scenario with teams of analysts, even if you're at a huge internet company, because they just have so many questions to go and answer for the business. But because we've got that data hooked up and the schema is already there, unless you change the schema, we can just continuously rerun these analyses at different time periods and then actually notify you 
typically via email when a new factor appears. So that, you know, if this episode comes out and it turns out people are really interested in this kind of data exploration hypothesis testing, or maybe this takes off with, you know, folks who are into Rust, because that's what our backend is written in, then you can actually be notified about that as it's happening, as opposed to having to like look at the viewership graph. It might look flat, but there's actually some segments that are up and some segments that are down. And it's it's not like it doesn't sound like rocket science, you know, when you when you kind of you know, lay it out like that. But the challenge is just doing this, you know, continuously and rep- repeatedly and knowing what to show at any point in time. Right. So if I imagine those 10 million rows plotted on a Cartesian plane and you could draw all these different lines of best fit through them, I suppose, or you could do clustering, you could do all kinds of things to find correlations or find interesting insights to surface to a, a human analyst that's looking at this uh, this set of insights that Sisu is delivering. You know, if you've got 10 million rows and 80 columns, there's just so many potential ideas that could be surfaced. How do you prioritize which ideas to evaluate with your analytics engine? Totally. No, it's a great question. And, and the funny thing actually is... You know, this idea, people talk about these insight generation tools. There's been a bunch of companies in this space. Like the hard part when we talk to people in practice or customers and prospects is that no one really uses this stuff because a lot of the engines just give out kind of garbage results, right? So like, and and we had garbage results for a long time ourselves as well. So like you can get results like when order value is not null, you always make a sale. That's, That's not very useful. No, not useful. There's like functional dependencies in the data that are just always true. And then even if you find things that like, I remember one of our early engines we were running with a, this is uh, back on campus where like, you know, users in Norway who onboarded in the last seven days are way more likely to be, you know, unusually active than, than other users. And it's like a cohort of like five people, but they didn't exist last month and now they exist this month, you know? So like, <laughs> you know, like, so the, so the ranking and relevance part of this is actually really hard. And I think that's where the where one, the ability to scale up to do a lot of rows gives you, in a statistical sense, a larger budget to test different hypotheses. But to answer your question more directly, there's various measures of ranking and relevance that that depend on the distinct user. So I'll give you an example. Like uh, one of the teams we worked with at Microsoft was the Skype, Microsoft Skype team. And they have a ton of data about Skype call quality broken down by region and ISP and a bunch of non-PI useful stuff to figure out how Skype doing. So for a PM who cares about call quality, they likely care about, you know, where are the outlier call qualities coming from? Like, where's the worst call quality coming from? Because it might be like a software bug or a protocol bug or something with an ISP. But if I'm a growth marketer, what I'm going to care about is something completely different, which is whatever's going to move the needle up and to the right. And so just to give like a concrete example of one metric we found very, very useful is uh, there's a concept of a counterfactual or sometimes in statistics what's called an influence function. And the idea is this. If I have a cohort of users, let's say of viewers, if I removed these viewers from the overall population, how much would that affect, say, the average 90-day rolling view count? And so if I have so so if I have a large cohort of users that 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 watch a little bit more than average, and that'll affect my view count. If I have a few users that are very small, but they watch, they just listen a ton, right? They're like, they're like, they listen this episode a hundred times, right? They're also going to influence that average. And so this this weight of kind of assessing what's the impact or the influence of this group with the other rows versus without the other rows is a pretty good ranking function for anyone who cares about overall growth. So we basically end up combining a bunch of these and then ranking them on a per user basis. But it's kind of like, the, and I have to go deeper into the stuff. I can nerd out on the stuff all day, but like the devil's in the details in terms of not showing stuff that's super obvious. And it's pretty contextual, but these different like influence functions, different causal models, and some hypothesis tests, you kind of aggregate them into a mega model and then rank. How much manual configuration do you expect from the, the operational analyst? Because like, I understand if you want to optimize for churn, you want to understand the metrics that contribute to churn. You want to understand the metrics that can that can lead to conversions or something like that. It may also help to have the analyst label certain columns like uh, 
gender or age or these other things that like, you know, maybe the analyst suspects might have a high value. Do you expect any operational analyst configuration to be done in addition to selecting the one column to be optimizing? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think the implicitly answer is yes, right? So like garbage in, garbage out in terms of features. But I'd say where we kind of fit in, and this is a very deliberate decision, you know, we really only work with customers who are already looking at their data in some kind of BI tool. So my kind of like prior for this is if you're not already looking at this data on a regular basis and aren't already slicing and dicing, trying to figure out why a metric is changing, you the probability that you're going to act on that and actually get value out of some, a tool like Sisu is very low. And so we typically come into deployments where someone's already done the work of curating the features they care about. And what we're basically acting as is kind of like the flashlight to tell them what's moving the needle and then kind of a monitoring tool to continue to track it over time. And so if they haven't done any work in terms of like featureizing their data, like they just have like a bunch of flat files or they don't have any columns that are naturally come to mind in terms of like, okay, if there was movement according to this column, like uh, segment ID or age or region, then like they're probably not a good user of the tool. And we'll do some data enrichment. In fact, you know, you can do a lot of stuff with non-PII. Like if you know someone's zip code or coarse grain location information, you can you can pull in auxiliary data from both public data sources and alternative data sources to enrich that. Uh, but in general, we're not really in the business of, of the data cleaning and data prep. It's really going into people who, who are kind of scratching their heads today or may have had an analyst set up a dashboard for them according with a couple different breakdowns by region and so on and give them like a power tool that only does one thing. It's not going to visualize as nicely as their BI tool. It's not going to do data prep like their BI tool. It's not going to do reporting like their BI tool. It's just going to sit on top of this thing and say, why is this moving? Why is this moving? Hey, by the way, this thing moved and here's why, right? Moving from that reactive to proactive uh, model. And the interface for the operational analyst, do you expect them to be sitting in front of this thing all day or just checking it every now and then? Or do I get like an email every morning from Sisu that says, hey, your churn was down 22% and it may be because of these reasons. What's the the end user interface? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, I think this is one of the reasons why I was so excited to take the work we were doing on this backend engine and bring it to kind of a commercial environment at a startup. Because for me, like there's a bunch of hard problems in terms of like columnar database execution, distributed execution, you know, vectorized query processing, data encoding. There's a bunch of stuff required to make this stuff run fast, which is what I kind of love doing and 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 where I we did a bunch of papers and kind of where I hang my hat on the academic side. But the user interface is super critical because in some sense, right, if you think about how ranking and relevance works on the internet, it's all based on like what this person click on, what didn't they click on? Are they sharing or emailing this link with other people? Like think about how Google's like a giant, you know, collaborative filtering model. Same thing with the Facebook news feed and, you know, Netflix as well. And I think a lot of ML and AI people pitch it as like, you'll get like the one true answer, right? Like ML, your ML model will tell you what to do. But in reality, if you think about like, you know, early Google, right? You had the search, you had the search bar and then you had the, had the I'm feeling lucky button. And like the idea that you get the answer right on the first try was like a joke. Like it was literally tongue in cheek, like Larry and Sergey, like, oh, if you're feeling lucky, we'll give you this answer, right? So similarly for us, like there's no clear like prior work on exactly what the interface should look like and what a great user experience should look like in terms of both like actually getting someone to understand what we're talking about when we have like a given, you know, Z-score and a t-test result and a bunch of information about the database and the cohort size and so on. So that's like one part, just explaining what the heck's going on. And then the other part is actually building out interfaces where you can gather feedback from users without having like a very lame, like thumbs up, this was a good answer, thumbs down, it was not, not a good answer. And so I'd say like one of the big innovations from a computer science perspective that I'm really excited about and excited to talk more about um, over time, even writing some papers, is is really about like what does the right user interface design look like where you're giving kind of this recommendation-oriented approach and you're able to explain things in a way that's accessible to people who don't even know SQL. And so just to give you like a flavor of this, 
we have this design principle. And some of our early designers are awesome. Like Michi was actually helped redesign the Twitter timeline going from in-order tweets to the out-of-order ranked tweets. So if you don't like that, you can stop by the office and complain to Michi. And, and Aaron uh, led design on GitHub Enterprise. So really serious designers. But basically, we, we essentially have this threshold of low threshold, high ceiling. So we want to make it so that anyone who kind of knows a little bit about their data can get an answer, but then you can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. So for example, if you've got an objective configured about increasing viewership to the show, you can subscribe to daily or weekly updates about what's changing viewership. And in your inbox, you'll essentially get what we call a fact, which is a uh, statement about what has changed in your data. So we might say, you know, from this month compared to the prior month or from last month to this month, viewership increased by, you know, 2000 uh, views. The group where uh, topic of interest equals machine learning and referrer equals LinkedIn contributed 1,500 of those views to your total, right? And, and basically, it's an English language description using the data, right? So it's basically column name and column value along with associate statistics that'll like just show up in your inbox in a sentence. And then if you're like, what do I want to do about that? Why is it just, what about just only LinkedIn or what about only machine learning? You can click in and then we can get you the raw data behind it. We can look at say LinkedIn and Rust, LinkedIn and Java, LinkedIn and C++, or you can look at Twitter and machine learning and all these different alternative facets of ways of looking at this data to figure out like, it may be the case that LinkedIn and machine learning drove a lot of traffic, but actually what you want to do is you actually want to start promoting your LinkedIn posts on Twitter or on Hacker News, right? And so, so like we don't tell you exactly what to do with that, but we tell you that something has changed in a way where you can kind of get the high level drivers and then go deep to formulate a recommendation where if you're like a Uber analyst, you can like annotate this thing and even export a slide deck for your boss end to end to, to make that recommendation, you know, quote, business friendly. Let's talk a little bit about the data process before entering Sisu. So modern data workflows have become centered around this data warehouse, like Snowflake or Redshift, Apache Spark is kind of a data warehouse, some people might say. And I think we started doing this show about four and a half years ago, and I feel like back then, the running hypothesis was that the way that these big data analytics systems would evolve would be that you would have a lot of processing take place in stream processing systems. You would have Storm or Spark Streaming or Flink, and these would be the systems that would generate the end results. Does it surprise you that the the workflows have become centered around the data warehouse? Yeah, it's a good question. It doesn't actually surprise me that much. And I think there are kind of two big reasons for why I think I've, I, at least what I see in terms of driving this, this shift. So one is that you've got, like, if you think of where the data is coming from, a lot of data is coming from SaaS applications or microservices, right? So if you think about the data volumes that, that people are, like, growth of data, it's not coming from like people clicking more stuff on your website. I mean, there's some data in terms of click streams, but the vast majority of this when we see inside of a data warehouse, from at least from a customer-facing perspective, is coming from getting more and more context from different systems. So like, you know, Salesforce led the latest round at Snowflake, which is kind of crazy because Salesforce is like a data silo in a sense, all about the sales data. But the reality is like, if I want to analyze how my marketing campaigns are affecting my sales, it's actually much more efficient to aggregate that data inside of a data warehouse rather than pumping all my marketing data, Salesforce, and all my Salesforce data to say Marketo. And so it's like this many to one connector where if you think about the data volumes at scale coming from automated sources, I just like the amount of work, quote unquote, to pipe data into these warehouses is basically linear in the number of connections I need to make. And you've seen even among, like there's this cottage industry of players. Like if you, I, one of my favorite searches, if you Google like Salesforce to Redshift, the first 20 results are, are like SEO'd 
landing pages for a bunch of companies trying to sell you connectors as a service. And there's some of them are really good. Like we actually use one of these vendors ourselves because it's just cheaper to outsource that to someone else and pay by volume. It's almost getting commoditized. Rick Branson over at Segment actually made the observation, not on behalf of Segment Efficient or anything, but I was talking to him. He made a smart observation that over time, there's a push to even push that connector functionality into the SaaS products themselves which, you know, then you have standardized schemas and it's not that complicated to get your Salesforce data out and into one of these warehouses. It's still a lot of work, like data engineering is not going away, but it's pretty good. And the flip side of this, this is my second reason why I think we're changing this is like, it's not bad to get this data into these warehouses. And then it's really hard to write streaming jobs. So like stream processing is just such a mental, it's like concurrency, right? It's really hard to, to write good streaming programs just because it's like we don't as humans we don't think about saving state and partial materialization and all the stuff that like went into stream processing and so i think that compared to the complexity of writing a streaming job doing much on the fly etl and then loading stuff in especially for a lot of business processes where you only need an answer like on an hourly basis or a daily basis you can just write like batch jobs that do some data integration on top of your you know snowflake or redshift cluster and it's not that bad. And tools like DBT and, and just rolling your own you know, transforms, is, it, it's not the end of the world. We're certainly like for high-frequency trading and finance and so on, you definitely need that scale of streaming data and you know, time series database is super useful for like IoT. But if I'm like a marketing operations team, I can get a lot from off-the-shelf connectors and a little bit of information, possibly work up front with, with some of the CDP platforms out there to get a you know, UUID I can use to join. And then I'm kind of done. So your explanation for why the emphasis went to the data warehouse rather than the the streaming systems is basically that the data warehouse is a familiar interface, it's a familiar environment, and the upside to moving to a streaming system is that the data is going to be just slightly more up-to-date, but in most situations, it's not going to matter enough to incur the engineering cost of trying to implement one of these complex streaming systems rather than just saying, eh, I'll use a, you know, data connector, you know, I'll, I'll get the data connector to hook into my data warehouse and then I'll give it to the analyst and the analyst speaks SQL and I'm done. And that's just easier than, than futzing around with streaming systems. That's the nut of, that's, that's kind of like the good summary. Yeah. And I think the, like the thing I found that's really interesting is, you know, when we started doing this stuff, this research at Stanford, we were like very into IoT. In fact, if you look on the early date, like the early drafts we post on archive, it was about like Macrobase was a system for IoT data. And I think what, you're, what I've seen in kind of my like reasonable confidence in this prediction is there's like two classes of data by volume, right? There's like machine data where GE used to brag about how many terabytes of data generated during a given flight. Or, you know, you can take kilohertz sent, you know, readings of like, you know, seismographic data uh, if you're really into that stuff. You can just generate arbitrary amounts of machine data. And then there's like human scale data where, you know, with three something billion people in the US and, you know, less than 10 billion people worldwide, like you can fit a lot of data per person, even on like a single server. And, for that human-generated data or that data that pertains to humans, it's not so high volume. You need a completely new architecture, um, unless you're like measuring people's like pulse per like kilohertz or something like this. Right? There's like not a lot of use cases for that fine-grained information, and even for the machine data, like outside of a few specific applications, like I don't actually care what the rotational velocity of the you know, jet engine at every single, I don't know if jet, jet engines rotate, but whatever those sensors are gathering, like I just kind of want to know like what's the fuel economy of that flight, right? And I can extract higher level structured information about this, about these like fine grain sensors as well. So I think there's kind of bifurcation and in a lot of the really valuable enterprise use case we've seen, the data just isn't that big. Like people used to make a big deal like, oh, you can fit all these big data sets in memory. And now I think like the, the new one for a lot of businesses outside of like, you know, Google clickstream data is like you could fit all your data on like about your users on like one machine. So the data emphasis has become on the data warehouse. And how does the data get into Sisu? Does it go from a data warehouse into Sisu? Yeah, I mean, we make a strong emphasis not to reinvent the wheel, especially wheels that are really don't squeak a lot and are, and are well polished. So 
our default interface is basically just ODBC or the open database connectors that are available for every warehouse. You know, the kind of geeky, funny backstory, we wrote a blog post on this, but it turns out like reading data via ODBC is actually kind of slow. Like, like so for, for compatibility reasons, the first step is just ODBC and we can do that with any major database. But it turns out like for things like Redshift, since it's columnar encoded and ODBC is basically row-based interface, it's actually faster to do like um, a parallel unload to S3. Um, actually, it's slow because... Sorry, I misspoke. It's slow because Redshift's a partition database. So it's faster to actually unload Redshift to S3 in parallel and then read in from S3 in parallel on the back end. Like we have a fast code path for that because we do a lot with Redshift. But in... Which is like kind of insane to me how crappy these database connectors are in terms of just throughput. If you really want to suck data out, but in general, yeah, we rely on the ubiquity of SQL and the and the value of the ODBC connectors. It's just like insane how good, like as you said earlier, like the warehouse abstraction is, and like every tool speaks ODBC, every kind of like BI vendor speaks ODBC. Like if you don't really speak ODBC, it's unclear if the data is even valuable, at least from a business perspective. And once the data gets into Macrobase, so is Macrobase a full-on database system, or are you using some database under the under the hood, like a SQL database or or something like that? Yeah, yeah. So what Macrobase essentially it's still open source. What it basically was, we we haven't really developed it for a while for a couple of reasons I can go into, but. Basically, you can think of it as the top half of a database. It's a query processor that runs like one type of query, which is given an aggregate. So take your view count or churn rate or some expression over a column or set of columns. Tell me what's driving it. So run these large number of hypothesis tests and then rank the results uh, according to some ranking function of those tests. And what we essentially built with CC, we ended up scrapping all the macro-based code because I love Java. I wrote a lot of the early code in, in Macrobase, but like running it in production was a real kind of bear, especially when you have really, really large, like couple hundred million record data sets, thousands of columns. Uh, we end up rewriting everything in Rust. But same principle, it's distributed data flow engine. We do ingest into a specialized columnar format and you do special encoding based on you know, if you only have two distinct values in a column, you might want to bit vector bitmap encode it into a bit vac- bit vector. If you have many columns, you might want to just encode it into a normal uh, column representation. And then, you know, the engine basically has this in-memory representation, possibly distributed, and then we'll parallelize this essentially search over the space of possible factors you might want to show to a user, and then you put ranking on top of it and kind of go from there. So it's it's like I describe as the top half of a database because, again, like Snowflake, Redshift, BigQuery, these are amazing systems. Like they're really well done distributed databases. And rather than trying to reinvent distributed databases, just like we don't want to reinvent BI, we kind of sit in between and we just say, look, we want to be the best and the fastest at telling you why. And that requires a new query processor because you push it down and do like a cube statement in the database. It, would, it takes like weeks to answer because it's a combinatorial explosion. Uh, but by pulling it out and doing it in our specialized data formats and with a bunch of pruning rules we've got on our back end, like it goes, you know, orders of magnitude faster. So if my data warehouse is Redshift, you're going to be executing the actual queries in Redshift and, and the query planning is just going to take place in Sisu? What we do is we we run as much as we can. We push it down into Redshift, and then we'll extract the result set from a base query or a slightly modified base query. Maybe we'll prune out certain columns or do joins inside of the system, and then we'll pull it out into uh, our our uh, backend environment. And the backend environment, just kind of like Databricks does it, we can deploy it inside of some of our customers. So we VPCs. So like for one customer, we're deployed in multiple different data centers or different, you know, AWS environments because of data compliance and governance issues preventing, you know, cross-continental transfer. And we also do it on top of GCP. I mean, Kubernetes honestly makes this whole thing amazing. Like I think building a company and a cloud service from scratch in 2018 on top of Kubernetes was like a dream compared to what I think the Databricks folks had to do back in like 2013 in terms of their deployment and VPC peering and stuff. But in a nutshell, yeah, we suck the data out of the database. It runs in some secure processing environment. And then we extract the facts and then the we have kind of a rendering template that goes out to users once these things have been ranked. 
So the initial query, there's, I guess there's so there's a query plan that's that's created, and then part of the query executes against my Redshift or my Snowflake or whatever the underlying thing is, uh, the underlying data warehouse, and then there's some result set that just yes. is emitted, and that's sitting in memory in the Sisu architecture, and then there's some final steps that take place in the Sisu in memory system. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a trend for a while with these systems like Madlib. And I think Impala supported some of this as well, like to push the SQL or to push like ML down into these engines. And I think BigQuery is BigQuery ML now. And like the reality is programming these UDFs is like, or user-defined aggregates is really painful because you're basically sitting inside of like, if you do it in Postgres, you're using Postgres as memory manager. It's really hard to parallelize this stuff. And it's actually pretty dependent on the database. And so given that we have such a wide deploy base and i'm not even sure what post what what like snowflake support for user defined aggregates is we felt that for for the performance reasons and and portability reasons just doing this outside of the database so even though we take a hit in terms of data transfer uh, speed it's still faster cuz again like you just can't do if you do like repeated group buys for example to evaluate some of these different you know hypothesis tests right even like the ODBC setup and latency for each of these successive calls over a portion of your of your table is just like super expensive, and you know for better or worse, it's it's basically requires building a new engine. And I think you know if I'd make one ask of the database vendors, which I'm sure they'd never do, is make it easier to get the data out because it's the same thing that you do if you do processing on top of Spark, right? Like being able to do all the transformations inside of a native processing environment as opposed to inside of a SQL system that's pretty brittle and specialized for storage and has archival processing and all this sort of good stuff that why you buy a warehouse in the first place, it just makes a lot more sense. You mentioned before that the early days of the database or of, of Sisu, you, you felt that the insights weren't super useful or, or the system would continuously emit it insights and maybe some of them would be useful, some of them would be questionable. And... I can imagine this is the core, or at least one one of the the fundamental challenges to to getting this thing to market. Because if you have enough, you know, if you serve enough bad results to the analyst, the analyst is eventually going to stop paying attention to the emails, or stop paying attention to the dashboard, or stop paying attention to whatever insights you deliver. You really have to have a high hit rate of useful insights that you give to the to the end user. How do you even benchmark? whether Sisu is good enough or, or is delivering good insights at, at, a, at a good enough basis. I guess I'm, I'm curious about the, the product development process and the go-to-market process yeah. at this point. No, totally. I think this is like the, depending on who you ask, the billion-dollar question or $100 billion question. <laughs> so, you know, we knew that this thing would work and that we had people actively using macrobase and variants of it in production and still have it. So, like... You know, we wrote papers with Microsoft, Facebook, Google. We have a preprint or a submission with Microsoft talking about, you know, num- like queries on the system we deployed there. It's like over 20,000 per week running in production. Like people were finding it valuable. But the reason why it worked really well is we were working very closely with our data engineering teams to set up a service where we could tune the parameters for known workloads, right? So like uh, the Skype use case, we kind of knew what like good settings for these different hyperparameters would be. And it turned out when we got them right, we were able to reduce kind of false positives and noise enough that people were pretty actively, you know, using the system. And so that kind of gave us success that the the idea of like, okay, maybe there is a there there and we don't have to guess at these things and we can actually go in and, and, and deliver something valuable that works across these different use cases. So we knew we could do it if we tuned it. And then the question was at Sisu, like as a kind of vertical agnostic platform, like how do we actually, you know, deliver these types of results, ideally without, you know, doing much of data engineering on a per customer basis. And kind of the the thing we've found is there's a couple there's a couple common tricks that we've that we apply by default to everyone. Like for some of the Microsoft data, which is pretty cleaned up, there weren't a lot of functional dependencies where like one column was perfectly correlated with the other. And there weren't a lot of nulls. And because they owned the end-to-end system from like the SDK running on the client all the way to the, you know, columnar storage engine. And it was a really like clean room 
built from scratch product analytics system. So some of the stuff like with these nulls and so on, we just had to add basically logic to detect these cases and have a set of pretty good pruning rules by default. But then the other thing that we've done quite a bit of is over time, just invested a lot more in different signals for, for ranking and relevance. So specifically, like we'll look at things like click-through rate and return visit rate. And we can run kind of uh, what are called like bandit style algorithms to experiment between ranking functions because we own the end-to-end product experience. And that was one of the things that was very attractive to me in terms of doing this as a business where we can actually look on a per account basis and understand what types of facts and what columns and combinations of columns are most valuable to which type of user. And that's like... Uh, been super helpful because there's no substitute for real data. And we don't have the data volumes that like Netflix has about who's watching what movies or Google has in terms of who's clicking what links, but you still get some signal about that you can then use to tune all these parameters in a more automated way um, on a per account and per organization basis. That's been a big part. It's just like looking at all the stuff you think about in consumer, but on an enterprise basis and then using similar ranking functions to take advantage of that. And the final thing I'll say, which is really important, is also just setting the expectation for what we show people, right? So, you know, this isn't like, we're going to give you the silver bullet. It's like, we're going to give you like, you know, five results. And if two out of five change what you what you were going to do today or what you're going to do this week, like that's still pretty valuable for a lot of our users because they're kind of flying blind with all these dashboards. And so a lot of companies we've seen who talk about doing anomaly detection or like finding like, you know, the outliers in in the data, like we've given up on outlier detection, even on the research front, because, you know, what's an outlier for you, like finding the needle in the haystack, that's completely different than what's an outlier for me. Like if I wake up at like 10 a.m. on a Saturday, like that's an outlier for me today, but it was not an outlier for me like two years ago. And so we make it really clear, like we're not going to find the single points in the data that are unusual or anomalous. What we're going to do is we're going to present you a set of results that are the top factors or groups of points that are moving the metric for your KPI. And they're going to be ranked based on what you've clicked on and have have saved in the past. And that actually closes a lot of the gap between kind of what you can actually do with data and what people want to do with the data. And it's an education process, right? Like in a lot of conversations with prospective customers, we say no all the time. People say, oh, can you forecast my sales next quarter? It's like, no. It's like, oh, can you clean up my data for me? We say no. And they've gotten so used to vendors promising the world and under-delivering that actually saying no and being very deliberate, we will help you diagnose the changes on top of your structured data. We'll give you a set of recommendations. We'll tell you the top cohorts. We are not going to detect what's going to happen in the future. We're not going to find individual outliers. We're not going to do targeting for you. Like That helps build a lot of credibility. And when we actually give the results to them, that coupled with the, res- the improvements we made in result quality lead to a pretty good results in-, in practice. And results we couldn't get in the lab because, again, getting access to this data and actually working on these use cases beyond tech companies is a lot harder from an academic environment. You worked with both Jan Stoika and uh, Ali Godzi when you were at Berkeley. And I know you've also been a close watcher of Spark and Druid. What have you, in what ways have you been influenced by the people who you've encountered and the, the open source projects that you've seen get commercialized? Yeah. So I'll first say, you know, working with Jan and Ali was like just an amazing experience. They're they're two of the sharpest technical minds that I know. And Ali in particular, who's continued to be a very close mentor to me, he just has he's probably has the greatest combination of technical IQ and then business savvy and EQ that I've ever seen. And I think Ben Horowitz, who's on both of our boards, would say the same thing. I mean, he's just a phenomenal individual. And and seeing them go to market and seeing how they've iterated, you know, they started with just kind of they were very early in the cloud. Like they, Databricks made a bet, a big bet, that they weren't going to do service and support. They basically handed that revenue off to, you know, Cloudera. And if you look at where the companies are now, it was the right bet to make because it let them stay focused on iterating with their early customers and staying ahead of the cloud vendors because Databricks is an infrastructure provider, right? And, and, and their number one competitors are the cloud. And now like Azure even sells Databricks uh, first party. So they've done a great job of staying focused on what they want to own, which is you know cloud data science. And even imply with the Druid folks, they're also offering you know cloud cloud offering. You know, for us it's a little bit different because we're not really we don't have a 
super technical buyer, right? In the sense that we're not selling into IT. We sell to analysts and we sell to business teams who need to become analysts. So that's a little bit different. But I remember early on talking to Ben and saying, gosh, you know, we spend so much time in security review, you know, trying to get access to the data to show this, to show, you know, you know, everyone wants a magic orb that will tell them why their metrics are changing. It's another thing to actually run it on their data and show the <laughs> show the value. So like we're spending so much time early days before we had like SOC 2 and HIPAA and this stuff, basically waiting to get access to data. I said, can't we just build like a desktop agent? Because we had some pretty cool users. Like I was really surprised to see people pick up Macrobase, which had like a desktop client in a single core mode. And it, like people found some pretty cool results that were at real legitimate companies tracking real metrics. And Ben's take was like, don't, don't compromise on running fast and iterating. Stay cloud-based. And for the folks who aren't cloud in the cloud yet, including a bunch of banks, even today, like they'll get there over time. And I think that's been really, really interesting. And and for us as well, from the open source side, it's kind of funny because like if I'm a business operator, like I'm a marketing operations person, I don't care if the thing is open source or not. I just want to get the answer. And so you know, we've contributed some stuff back to open source and pretty cool um, statistical packages around graph coloring, and we'll be releasing more over time. But like for our core user persona, they're just trying to do a better job. And so um, we've just focused on getting them the best answers, the easiest way, and the cloud has proven a really effective delivery mechanism for them. All right, last question. What would you be building if you were not building Sisu? Good question. Let me think. You know, I'm not actually sure. I think, you know, I don't think I'd work on transaction processing, given that transactions are pretty fast or, or fast enough. I think the thing that I think is actually really exciting, but also very scary. So I'd want to find a way to do this in a private way. Uh, and I have a couple um, graduate students working on this as well. But if you think about the data that we do have in these structured formats, it's all coming from like software and software services. But if you look at where we're going in terms of the availability of sensor feeds, in particular with like autonomous vehicles and the fact that you know almost every car will have a GPU in it soon, there's a ton of data about the physical world that we just don't have captured in, in digital format that's going to be very easy and cheap to capture soon enough. And so think about Google Street View. It only updates every, I don't know, couple months or whenever the Street View car goes by it. But if you suddenly have an environment where you've got cars going and looking at everything going on on every sidewalk and every uh, urban environment, there's a bunch of scary surveillance challenges there. So figuring out how to do this in a secure and privacy-preserving way, but actually getting analytics and, and running you know, models on the edge and trying to understand things like, you know, what's the line like at Starbucks? And, you know, what's the average wait time for BART? And actually answering these fundamental questions about the physical world using these new sensors that are just coming online, I think that's a really interesting programming interface problem. Uh, it's a systems problem in terms of you know data collection, aggregation, so on. These cars generate just tons and tons of data. And then finally, the privacy ones are just huge because for better or worse, you think about what the, the hardware in a Tesla or inside of any one of these autonomous cars you see driving around San Francisco, they're recording everything. And understanding how do we make use of this data in a productive way without compromising individual user privacy is a huge concern that independent of the applications around you know, retail analytics and so on, I think we need to solve. Peter Bayless, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. 